Welcome to the CityDAO podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gilbert Williams. CityDAO is exploring decentralized asset ownership on chain, starting with a simple piece of land purchased in Wyoming during 2021. Each parcel of land becomes an NFT that can be owned collectively by the DAO or by individuals just like you and me. CityDAO is a DAO. In other words, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, meaning that land governance, treasury, and other things, including this show you're listening to right now, are all managed by the community. Check out the FAQ at citydao.io to learn more, or check out the CityDAO Discord channel to get all the latest updates. Now let's get started with the show. Hi, everybody. And with us here today on the CityDAO podcast is another DAO giant, one of the DAOs with, you could say, arguably some of the most buzz out there, at least for me anyways, and with the most excitement. I guess this is a bit of a biased intro because I'm personally super excited about what you're doing. And basically anyone that doesn't know, Kraushaus is the DAO with primary sites on buying a professional NBA team represented in their slogan, Wagbat, we are going to buy a team or whatever variations you have for Wagbat. <laughs> And Commodore, I found you on Seed Club many months ago, essentially pre-launch, just before you were doing the full NFT sale. And I listened to your pitch, I listened to what's going on, and I was like, you know what, this is just something I got to latch on to. So I got my business partner on the call, and I actually had a technical issue, and I wasn't able to pick up one of the original 10 Clubhouse NFTs. I'm really sad about that, but I did manage to pick up club level number 14, which to me, I, I consider it a pretty big win in my business partner uh, picked up some as well. And I got a couple others too. But anyway, so yeah, super biased. So today we're going to talk about DAOs, having a big vision, executing on that vision, bridging the gap between the old world and the Web3 world, and much, much more. So Commodore, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here. How you doing? Yeah, man, I appreciate I love the bias intro, dude. It's super energizing. And I appreciate that and appreciate you supporting the vision. I think one of the things that we've struggled with, especially in the very, very beginning was like, this idea sounds insane. And then we would talk to people for 30 to 60 seconds or maybe a little bit longer. And people would be like, wow, you guys are not complete idiots. There's actually a path here. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So I appreciate you seeing that light of the tunnel and supporting that. It's humbling. Well, you know, it's weird in this wild world of what Web3 is becoming and what crypto is becoming. It's like when we dream big, there's means to executing on that dream. It's not airy fairy weird stuff anymore. Like in CityDAO, there's what, 15 people that are making salaries from part-time to full-time. People are quitting their jobs to work for DAOs these days. What's next? Like, I don't, I don't even know. It's a huge subject, but it's really cool to see that you executed on this, this idea and it's come to be what it is. How big is your Discord right now? I forget. Is it several thousand? Yeah, it's something like 7,000. Yeah, and you guys are super active. I was doing a good peruse through again yesterday. But before we dive into that, just for anyone that's listening who maybe isn't familiar with Krauss or needs a refresher, I wondered, Commodore, if you could put in your own words an explanation of what is Krauss Krauss is on a mission to own and operate an MBA team. And I think that operating piece is really important to us because I think just taking an asset and sort of tokenizing it and then owning it with no governance, that's a good V1. And Constitution DAO is a great example of that. But there was no actual interesting governance of Constitution DAO beyond the ownership of it. So for us, it's like, I think the dream and the meme that we tapped into was this idea, I think, is a lot of basketball players sort of think, I'm going to play in the NBA. They start to realize that they probably don't have the skills. They think someday I will own a team. They realize that that's even harder to own an NBA team than to make the NBA. And so that energy, though, I think is around general management of it. Wouldn't it be cool to have a voice in how we design this roster? And so going back to our, our kind of mission is like, I think that operating it is really, really powerful and doing that in a decentralized way, discovering ways to drive meritocracy. One story I like to say is like, there's a 14-year-old out in India who is the biggest MBA fan, an incredible analytics savant, understands how to be the world's greatest GM. And the path for that person to have a voice in any NBA organization right now is incredibly difficult, incredibly low odds, incredibly challenging. And I think that one of my sort of dreams is that we build systems, mechanisms, games, processes in order for that person to have a large share of the voice without putting up $2 billion. Maybe they put up $100 and they earn their way to having a large voice in that organization. That to me is, is like the dream that I think we can bring to the world. Now, how long will it take? What are the obstacles we're going to have to hurdle? Like, There's a lot to get there, but that's sort of the, the passionate energy that I'm kind of putting out there. And you've met with officials now in different levels of organizations and in different leagues and had like serious conversations about 
ownership and buying a team. Is that right? Absolutely. So you touched on sort of this idea of like putting out something big, right? And then it's almost like the energy can kind of come behind it. And I was actually listening to Lex Friedman's podcast. He had Sarah Walker and Lee Cronin on it. And they were talking about the universe as this like novelty engine. And like, that's why the universe continues to expand is like creates more novelty space. And they have this whole theory. And it's a really great, very long podcast to listen to. But one of their things that they were touching on, and I'm probably completely butchering their main point, but this idea that sort of like novelty can sort of drive energy and, and excitement through the act of the more novel the thing, like the more energy it can pick up. And I think Krausehaus is sort of a case study a little bit in that of saying, Flex and I started early thinking like, would it be cool to like kind of make this crypto basketball kind of DAO? And it's like, that's just like so lame and like primitive of like, oh, like, cool. Like, it's like, we're a bunch of crypto natives that talk about basketball. Like, there's some interest out there. But this idea of repackaging, like, what would we do if we had a magic wand with that group? Oh, you'd probably own and operate an NBA team, maybe a bunch of NBA teams, maybe a bunch of different leagues, all this type of stuff, right? And so taking that novel idea, putting it out there, and then letting the kind of the universe sort of draw that energy. So I just, I found their podcast really inspiring and helpful framing for, I think, what Krausehaus tapped into. I'm deviating a little bit, but the NBA conversations with different leagues, the NBA teams. And I, and I, you know, I will try to speak a little bit generally because we watched Wagme United, I think, go very public and very aggressive in their mission of buying a team and it kind of blew up in their face. So they've obviously now acquired a different level team, but I do want to be sensitive to those conversations. But I think that this idea of having more people have access to these exclusive assets resonates with owners. It resonates with the sort of front offices, if done with meritocracy driven behind it. It resonates with the NBA. Their goal is to be the number one sports league in America. And so they see crypto and monetization and growing as a good thing. They're not afraid of taking bets. So there's a lot of foundational building blocks here that the NBA is the right league to think about in this space because of some of those mechanics. The other one I'll add is that they allowed private equity to buy minority positions in the last two years. That's a huge mind shift for the ownership collective to say, wait a second, like now I can picture a group of 100 people owning 2% of a team. And what does that look like? What does that feel like? How does that impact me? And so the mental models are there now too. So 10 years ago, let's just imagine crypto was you know, 10 years forward and time was 10 years back in the NBA. Like I don't think those two things would collide as well. So I think the value propositions, honestly, this is like, I'm obviously sipping the Kool-Aid. They're even stronger than I realized by starting the idea and now having had deep legal, financial, operational conversations, I'm like, wow, this pitch is actually stronger than I could have imagined, which is amazing. So I'm very bullish on it, but a lot of details to figure out in the meantime. Yeah, totally. And I think about this evolution over the last 20 years, right? And I'm still looking for the right words, but the thing that's coming to mind is if Web 1 was a way to liberate people to communicate and Web 2 was a way to liberate people to create, then Web 3 is a mechanism to allow people to own and liberate people to own and govern. Would you sort of agree with that or do you have a different twist? Yeah, I, I like that. You know, Web 1's about reading, Web 2's about reading and writing. And I've seen some good framing around thinking about that it's from the database perspective, right? So it's like, you know, you're writing into a database you don't own. And then Web 3 is you're writing into a database that you do own, right? And so the ownership of the database is sort of the abstraction there. But I think ownership is this really, really powerful thing that I think a lot of crypto skeptics can't quite wrap their head around, right? Because it's weird. Like one of the value propositions that the NBA gets really excited about, and it's a little non-intuitive, is to say like, you have fans right now where you sell them merch, right? And tickets and all this stuff. And they spend money, 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 and they complain on Twitter and they talk to their friends and they go to bars and they do all this stuff. And they're putting in some amount of capital and there's some sort of emotional investment. What's really non-intuitive is that this hypothesis really at its core is that people are actually willing to pay you even more money to have a relatively small say in the organization because of that sense of ownership. And to me, I think it's because of this explosion of internet and accessibility and visibility and everything. We can see the rich, young, and famous in, in Thailand owning this yacht and doing these things. And now we sort of, now that we're able to kind of just dip into these digital experiences, it's like, why not put $5,000 in a thing that you're absolutely most passionate about? And then contribute a shit ton of work into that, right? Which is so, again, it's not intuitive, but if you believe in capitalism, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, oh, like give someone actual ownership in this thing, and then they're actually going to put even more work into it. And so I think it's a really, really powerful mechanism. So yes, I think ownership is probably a pillar. It might not be, but I, I suspect that's probably the strongest sort of paradigm shift of Web3, absolutely. It's fascinating to think that it's become now 
a world of let me pay you a whole bunch of money in order to volunteer and work for free. And I'm going to be totally happy and excited about the whole process. Exactly. And it's totally intuitively backwards. But again, (laughs) when we reframe it back to into a capitalistic mentality and sort of ownership and all these, we we have seen this time and time again and throughout societies. And again, you know, capitalism has a ton of problems. And like, I think, again, we're sort of, we're probably at the early stages of like the excitement side of capitalism right now applied to Web3. And so like a lot of us are bought into that mindset and we understand the pros and cons of it. And as more and more society gets involved in it, we'll start to experience, you know, more and more of the, of the downsides and there will be a more complicated, I think, view of it. But absolutely, we're bringing in actual ownership. I mean, I'm thinking even dumb stuff of like school, like you're sitting at a desk and the, the feeling of changing around desk every day, like there's pros and cons to not having your desk. And then versus having your desk and having a little spot where you keep a little toy and you have like your notebooks and you're like, kids on average are probably going to treat their desk better than they're going to treat that random desk. And like, that is the smallest, dumbest little example of human psychology, but giving that child autonomy over that space, they're actually going to put a little bit of work and care into that. And so we're just, you know, taking that kind of human condition and digitizing that really. And I think, you know, Web3 is like highlighting that incredibly, especially because humans are excited that they have a shit ton of followers on Instagram, right? And it's like, well, okay, you're literally like renting space on Instagram to build their ad network. Yes, there's a monetization path for you to go do this. But like, Web3 is starting to tease at that like, wait a second, you don't own shit on that space. And that's actually kind of a problem. So absolutely. And yeah, I mean, they can ban you at any moment. And this is the, I guess you could say the the honeymoon phase of Web2 kind of has its heyday and is gone now. The excitement of getting the dopamine rush of building a following and and being popular and getting internet famous is obviously a a real thing. And at the same time, there's so many people that have had their accounts banned or broken or hacked or, you know, it's kind of lost in some ways, some of its appeal. And working with DAOs is really turning the tables around being like, hey, look, how about we just own the platform and we can have all the benefits of the past as well. Just natural evolution. Yeah, I think Ben Thompson from Stratechery has had one of the best journal experiences of this is that, you know, he started Stratechery, I think something like six or seven years ago. Everyone's like, why aren't you posting on Facebook and Twitter and like, you know, using Substack and like all these different things to monetize across these platforms. He was notorious for a long time not publishing on a Spotify. And if you listen to his whole journey, he talked consistently about like, I want to own the experience with my customers. So I self-host my website. I self-host my emailing. I control my own email list. I don't look for distribution on Spotify with ad revenue. And I own this from end to end. And I think it's just a beautiful, he was this edge case in Web2 that I actually think is really just a a blueprint for how all of this stuff will look like in Web3 based on the insights that you had just articulated. So if I rewind for a second and coming back to Krause House, one of the first things that struck me when I saw you on Seed Club, I was like, what does that mean? You know, what is Krauthaus? Why pick that? Is that German? I don't understand. And then, so I was doing a little research and to my understanding, the name Krauthaus is inspired from the old general manager of Chicago Bulls, uh, Jerry Krause. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's definitely inspired by Jerry Krause. And, you know, I think one of the things when we started Krauthaus, there's probably two main building blocks. And this is kind of the inside story. One is we were watching Last Dance, like really fascinated. Obviously, Flex and I had grown up in the mid nineties. And so we had really understood the Jordan side of the experience, but as, as children, basically, really didn't understand the business side, watching the last dance and you know, understanding some of the intricacies. We thought this idea, and I think Jerry's philosophy of you know, organizations win championships as opposed to players, was an interesting sort of twist on the model and thinking about, okay, could DAOs sort of replace the organization, right? So we're looking at these decentralized autonomous organizations. So we felt like there was this interesting kind of pivot point on there. And then we love the rhymingness of Kraus and House as well. So we just thought it was a, a really cool name in, in that regard. But that's certainly where the inspiration comes. I mean, there's certainly some pros and cons with Jerry Kraus and, and his approach to basketball. And now that we've gotten to know some NBA players and you know front offices and sort of like the nuances of these relationships are, are much more complicated than, than you start to realize just as a casual fan. The name, I think, has some dynamicness to it. But yeah, that is the source of it. Gotcha. And I'd imagine you're going to keep the name. There's no plans to change that, I'm imagining? I don't think we're going to change the name, no. I was laughing because I'm watching Winning Time right now with Dr. Jerry Buss and, and the, you know, the Lakers and all this stuff. And I was like, there's another Jerry that is really interesting and his ownership model is an entirely different structure, right? And we do call our members Jerry's. And so 
I am starting to think about the word Jerry as being much more encompassing of all these really interesting Jerry's in our history in the basketball space, but that's probably just a, a personal anecdote. And so if we run through just briefly, how does it work? To my understanding, you end up with, you got to get your NFT to have access to the Discord, which is the entire community. So basically it's, it's not just NFT for Discord, it's NFT for community access. And then the tokens are used for governance decisions on Snapshot. You're essentially organized in sprints. In other words, I think you're calling them seasons. And you have a bit of a differentiation between Jerry's versus Stewart's and Core. And, and I wonder if you could elaborate on anything that I missed there or that I got wrong. You generally have the right structure there. It's, you know, we really were excited about this idea of NFTs for access, tokens for governance. And so that is the delineation that we have. It, the NFTs also, I think, allow you to do like, we watch the Friends with Benefits kind of ecosystem play out. And I think they have this nice mechanism, right, where they sort of have this inflationary, deflationary component that they can rise and, and fall, although it's mostly been rising, not falling, but to kind of control the gate of the way in. And I think that's an interesting mechanism. And you lose that with the NFTs because of them sort of just being the static object. Like you can't say, hey, now everyone needs two tickets to get in. Like, you know, just kind of that, that idea uh, falls apart. But the extendability of the NFT in granting perks and experiences either at, you know, in real life stadiums or events that we host or even digital experiences, I just think is this really kind of cool concept. And because they have this focal point on a sport, you know, I also imagine there's a world someday in the future that we haven't really spent much time on where, you know, the metaverse version of Krause House is also going into this digital stadium space to watch a, a game. And then you could use that ticketing level to sort of be more immersed or less immersed in that experience, right? And so there's just, I like that mental model of that. So that's the, the ticket comes from. And then you touched on some of the members. Yeah, so we kind of casually call ourselves all the NFT holders, uh, Jerry's. We do have a stewardship team. Uh, stewardship team though, is really more, probably better thought of as like, it's really a team that's job is to make sure that if people have ideas, that they get well formulated into proposals. And I think one of the things that we witnessed as we were looking at Dow Governance was a lot of times you have either a bunch of bad ideas just flooding snapshot or flooding discourse, wherever they're kind of using as their kind of beginning piece of this idea turning into a concept, or you're on the flip side where it's like only the kind of proposals are really just coming from a core team and the governance is really just an allusion to the broader community. And so we've really felt like this was an important team to say, hey, like you have this idea, you want to start a new podcast, you want to use our branding, you want to do X, Y, and Z, great. Here's what the comp you want to go do, cool. Here is a couple objective things that we can measure on how long it's going to work. Here's a good mechanism for us to think about compensation. Here's a good reassessment period. Let's test it out for three months. Let's check in on three months. What does a check-in look like? How do we know if it succeeded or failed? And let's take that idea and go and run with it. And so the stewardship team, their job is really just, is not to you know, accept or deny ideas, but just to take ideas and help formulate them into a kind of bill structure. So I kind of think about it a little bit like, this is where Dow governance is super interesting. It's like, you have a community member who has an idea and that's almost like forms into a little bit of like a lobbyist group kind of translating this into US law. That lobbyist group has an interest and then they work with lawmakers to write a bill that then gets voted on, right? And so I think about that stewardship team really is the interface between so that lobbyist group and that lawmaking of like, okay, here's your interest. Here's the bill and the law that we'll write. Okay, now we're going to let everyone go vote on it. And so we're just sort of this like open group to say like, yeah, like let's write bills and let's vote on them. And speaking of lawmakers and regulation, and where did you guys incorporate? Are you in Wyoming or did you pick somewhere else? We are in the process of being a Panama foundation. Gotcha. I'm just curious, why would you pick Panama? I mean, Republic of Marshall Islands, you know, launched their DAO, you know, regulation. Wyoming, of course, what they did last year. I've bumped in a couple of DAOs that are registered in Delaware. What was the benefit for Panama? Just out of curiosity. I don't want to go too far down the legal rabbit hole, A, because I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to give legal advice and every DAO structure is different. So that's my legal disclaimer. But I would say at a high level, this is Commodore's perspective. I'm not speaking in Krauss on this, but I feel like there's two buckets of entities, right? There's sort of these buckets of entities that they fit very tightly within a pre-existing box. So I think of Wyoming, Dowville, Delaware, LLC structure, you know, operating as a DAO. You kind of have that bucket, really, there's probably two. And then you have sort of these more open-minded, fluid structures, right? So BVI, Cayman Islands, Panama Foundation, Guernsey is another one. You mentioned Marshall Islands, right? So they have all their different structures. And when I think about those two buckets, I think it depends on what type of things you're trying to do. And so there are certain DAOs that I think that land DAOs, right? Ones that are interacting with land purchases, like they probably need to fall in that first bucket. Ones that are more social, more digital, this experience thing online, I think they have more flexibility to do in the other. Again, not legal advice. It's just kind of my, my view of it. Not a lawyer. 
And so I think that a lot of social DAOs, I suspect, will kind of be in that second bucket of structures. And in each one of those structures, so Panama, Cayman, BVI, et cetera, Guernsey, they basically just have a set of pros and cons that are all roughly the same. So I think to each project is just like, okay, what are our set of pros and cons for this one versus that one versus the other one? And it ranges from time, money, number of directees, trustees, what the mechanism for you know signing a legal contract that's created through the DAO governance. So there's a lot of complexity in that. But the point that I will probably end on here is that I think that Crosshouse and its structure and on most social DAOs, there's a lot of benefits to sort of existing in one of those buckets. And then the, the decision between those is much more nuanced and specific to a project. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, thanks for sharing your perspective on that. There's a bunch of things I want to ask you about what's currently at top priorities and, and hot subjects like the big three team and the international league explorations you've done and moving into phase two. But before we jump into some of that, I'm curious to hear, and I think a lot of people listening are probably curious to hear a bit about the origin story. You know, like what were you doing before this? And like, <laughs> did you have a full-time job somewhere? And did you just wake up one morning like, hey, I want to buy a basketball team? And then people <laughs> agreed. You're like, what happened? Like, how did this all yeah. start going back, you know, as far back as you want? Yeah, I'll try to condense it because I don't want to give you guys the full narrative. So as a child, certainly thought I was going to play in the NBA. My parents always joked that I always struggled with which team I was going to play at. And, you know, I found out probably by sixth or seventh grade that that wasn't going to be a real option. I uh, got into building startups. What, what position did you play? When I was that age, I was a point guard. Played high schools as a center. Now when I play pickup, I'm kind of like a three spot. So kind of a small forward. Gotcha. Yeah, I was guard. It was just, you know, love basketball was my favorite. So that's cool. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Then I got into entrepreneurship, started three startups, had two exits. After my second exit, you know, which was, it was a nice, decent exit, this sort of realization that I was nowhere fucking close to being able to own and buy an NBA team and that the level of outcome that I needed to have was probably, you know, hundred or a thousand times larger than, than what I had, you know, to be even be able to consider putting $2 billion towards something frivolous like an MBA team at that level of net worth. I think that realization sort of you know, sinks in. You're like, okay, this is going to be really, really, really hard. And like, what does that look like? So the third startup winded down. And that's something I started with Flex. And Flex is a, is a childhood friend of mine, similar journey on kind of his interest in basketball and wanting to own an MBA team and these realizations. And so we were co-founders in that third company. We were winding it down. And I took two months off to golf every day, which was incredible, uh, highly recommended. <laughs> it got much better. I went from being very bad to kind of bad at golf. But I think one of those days I was actually just like practicing chipping in my backyard and I was talking to Flex on the phone and we were like, what should we do next? And we were kind of talking about Web3. We've been both on the sidelines since 2017, sort of passively investing in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And we were like, this DAO thing is really fascinating. Like, what could we go do in this space? And so that's where we started talking about, okay, basketball, crypto, Web3. And I think I blurted out like, what if we just bought a team as a DAO? And I think that that kicked off probably a two-hour conversation of us being like, well, there's no way that that would work because of blank. And then one of us would be like, well, I mean, if you have enough time, money and credibility, why wouldn't it? Because you could do X, Y, and Z, right? And some of my best ideas and for the startups, especially the ones that have worked really well, you get in that rhythm of like, well, okay, this is gonna be a problem. And you're like, well, shit, if you just did this, like, I guess that, and like, and you get in that flow and you're like, wow, okay, a lot of the core problems are actually solvable with again, time, money, scale, reputation, whatever it is. They're sort of first principles, like this could work. And I, we kind of landed on that spot with Krausehaus of saying like, if you could prove out you're legitimate, you could prove out what the, the financial structure is, the legal structure, the operational structure, you could do that by testing in different markets. And like, this probably could happen. And so at that point, we realized that there was something there. And we were like, let's start a podcast. Let's start talking about it. Let's see if other people like this idea. Let's see if it resonates with folks. We thought it was going to be more of an academic exercise, to be quite honest. Like, hey, this is going to be kind of two crazy dudes trying to buy an NBA team of the DAO of like community of seven people. And it turned out that a lot of people really resonated with the idea. And a lot of people agreed that there was a pragmatic approach and they agreed with our kind of path there. And so that really kind of snowballed it. But I would say that that inspiration was probably that moment that I was chipping in the backyard talking with Flex. And we were just like, wow, like this could work given enough time, money, and reputation. You and Flex, I, I suppose it's fair to say you're both founders of Krauss House originally. And then you had done previous ventures together successfully. And that's kind of how that relationship evolved. Is, is that right? So I did the first two without him as he kind of got into the tech scene. He was doing kind of different startups that he was involved in. And then that third company, which was the one we co-founded together, was our first company that we co-founded together. Ironically, the first failure uh, on my part and his first official co-founding, but we learned a lot. We actually ended up building this product that was really close to Clubhouse and we had built it right before the pandemic hit. And then there was like, why are you building social? 
in 2019, like social's dead, pandemic hits, clubhouse launches, clubhouse takes off and goes massive. I'm pitching the same product. People are like, why would I invest in you guys? Like clubhouse already won this market. And it was like, holy shit, like what a, I learned a lot kind of building in social audio and so, social networking space prior to this. And then the realization of timing, go to market, things like that. But yeah, we were both kind of in the general startup space, but that was our first venture together. And this is our second. How'd you guys first meet? Childhood friends. I think it was third grade. We met, both played basketball, both were pretty good at basketball. And so a lot of friendly rivalries in our, in our rec leagues and on the, on the school courts, but stayed good friends throughout the years since third grade. So it's been a long friendship. And did you guys need to have an initial seed of funding in order to do your launch or was really the first cash injection? Did that, was that like me and everyone else that participated in the NFT drop? You know, we had petty expenses, podcast hosting, you know, Gmail accounts, et cetera, Notion which you know, obviously was rounded to maybe a thousand dollars kind of deal. But yeah, that was the first real chunk. And we felt like it was really important as well to, we wanted to wait until we felt like there was a community behind this. And so the roadmap we outlined was phase one was building a talented community. Phase two was building out credibility. And phase three was building the treasury. And so we felt like if there was no community to go do this, like launching an NFT sale into crickets, like really wasn't interesting. There was no value in being part of the community. And so we really, you know, this is advice that I give all sorts of folks thinking about starting a DAO. It's like you can build a digital community with a DAO ethos with hardly any cost and really test out the idea, test if it's scalable, test if people resonate with a Twitter account, maybe a podcast and Discord. Like why over-engineer and, and you know, try to go too crazy when you need people to resonate with, with the idea. So we really delayed it. So we started, I think, the Twitter and the podcast and the Discord on roughly June 1st of last year. So about 11 months ago. And then we didn't do that kind of NFT sale until roughly like mid-November. So it was five-ish months of us just building and, and exploring and changing and testing out. And you know, a lot of people, this is another piece of advice I share is like, people are like, well, how did you incentivize people to contribute and like think about tokens and NFTs? I'm like, we made a spreadsheet that had this sort of hypothetical token and just said, hey, like it's basically like a kudos badge. And if you help out, you'll get a kudos token cross token every once in a while. And like, we'll just see what happens. And if there's something here, there's something here to that. And as I've now learned about human psychology and duocracy, Phil from Cavendow has, has really educated me on this. Is like, we really tapped into is like, the community just wanted to see this idea happen. So this idea of incentives and structures, like I think that works really well in the DeFi world. It works really well in the kind of these, you know, raw crypto tokens that are fighting for yield and all that stuff. Like, yeah, that makes sense because you're building out this very mercenary culture and in, in type contributors. And I think on this other side, social DAOs and vibes and, and just building this shared vision, Constitution DAO comes to mind, Cabin DAO, Krauss House. It's like, yeah, that stuff's helpful. But at the end of the day, especially in the beginning, you should be able to find a few hundred people who are just like, this idea is dope. Like, I want to help. How can I help? And so to me, that was really the big one. So this is a really interesting subject. And by the way, we just had Cabin DAO on the last episode. So you'd be like almost side by side, you know, with them. That's kind of funny timing. Awesome. Yeah. And when I even think about, you know, starting my own DAO or, or other people that I talk to as well, and we think about, okay, well, what would it be? And what's the concept? And what are we passionate about? And there's almost two initial directions that it can go. It can be like, hey, let's see if there's, if this idea generates its own proper community, and we'll use the community momentum to physically affirm that the idea is valid and we'll build on that. That's kind of, you know, generally one direction, community first. And the other one is, you know, I really want this idea, and I'm just saying in general, I really want this idea to work and I'm going to push it to work. And I know there's people out there and I got to find them and market to them and get them into the community. And we have to focus on building our community almost aggressively. And there's kind of a balance to both, right? On one side, if a person is starting a DAO that doesn't have an existing network at all, or maybe doesn't have any funding at all, or doesn't have any you know, experience at all, it'll be the rabbit that's chirping in the middle of the jungle. No one's going to hear it and they're going to get gobbled up. Whereas on the flip side, if that person who is you know, highly motivated maybe is a little too aggressive and they're, and they're shilling it too hard and they're, you know, let's say, doing paid promos on Twitter to pump and shill the whitelist and whatnot, they're going to develop sort of a, a bad rep and a bad taste in, in a toxic community accidentally on day one. And there's a lot of, you know, both that go on. And I don't know exactly where the balance is. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that or reflections. It's very similar to startups. And I've, you know, I've been in the startup space for 10 years. And like, Honestly, the third startup that I had mentioned that Flex and I, we kind of tried to do that where it's like we wanted to build the community to sell the product, but we had the idea for the product first. And one of the things that Flex and I talked a lot about behind the scenes was like, 
hey, Krausehaus is going to be us like really pushing our creative juices as well as our community building juices and just saying, go community first, community led, and then think about products, services, business models, all of that second. And so that was a academic exercise that was going on sort of behind the scenes as we built it. So I'm super biased in, in that approach. And I'm certainly bought into that approach as being really powerful. But I think that the simplest way to think about it is that if you have a differentiated unique value proposition. We talk a lot about that in startups, right? It's like there's a unique value proposition. If that unique value proposition is truly strong, if your go-to-market strategy is truly strong, you have a distribution mechanism that is unique that you can tap and leverage specifically to you, which is sort of the classic, you know, key foundations for a unicorn style startup. If you have those, then you absolutely don't need the community because you're going to be able to bring forth this idea that solves a key job to be done for a large group of people. And you're going to have a mechanism to get the word out And so what do you need a community for? Like you've invented the wheel. And so just get your wheel out there and show people the wheel and they will use it and that thing will scale and you'll drive a beautiful business community. Like all that stuff will be emergent, right? If you are not doing that, and most startups are not that, like vast majority of startups are not that. There's a very few, you know, Vitalik did that with Ethereum. And it's like, he didn't need to go get the community first because they just built Ethereum. And it's like, yep, it's self-evident. And then on the flip side, though, if you're going to do something that's more consumer and social and music and art, if it's touching on the human stuff, social media networks, the TikToks of the world, right, then to me, it has to be community first, or at least that's your highest probability of success is probably a better way of articulating that. It just depends on what you're bringing to the world. So if you take a step back on Krausehouse as an example, you say, hey, we're a bunch of people that are going to buy an MBA team. Yeah, there's a unique value proposition that I'm involved with it and sort of outlining the roadmap given some of my background in scaling startups. Same with Flex, some of the core contributors that are at Krausehaus. Like people seem to like, I think the team that's assimilated, there's high talent and high engagement. But like beyond that, there's really not a unique value proposition besides the fact that we are the group that's doing this and we sort of have the, you know, the largest lead on it. Like, and so that can be recursive and that can become a thing. But out of the gates, there's really no unique value proposition. So if your project's in that camp, then like, I think you have to be very community-led focused. But if you're inventing something, again, that's why I was kind of DeFi projects, things that are, you know, fighting, you know, yield and incentives and all that stuff, like, sure, then they kind of go product first. But I just think it depends on what you're trying to build. And I would say 90% of the time, community-led is probably your higher probability. The fact that the community is not coming around it is signal that is probably not going to work because most startups fail, right? So 90% of startups fail anyway. DAOs are probably going to potentially even have a higher fail rate. So it's like that signal that you're in the camp of the 90% failing. If you go live with this idea, no, no one's vibing with it. Again, that doesn't mean your core idea is dead. It means the way you're talking about it, the positioning of it, the feel of it, the kind of go-to-market, the timing of it, that's the dead part, right? And so I think a lot of times entrepreneurs think, oh, this thing's dead, and so I got to go move on to the next thing. It's like, no, it's sort of how you're packaging and structuring and branding it and talking about it that might be the piece. So it's not just I throw it all away. But think about your product and your DAO and your experience as like being nine, maybe 50 variables. But let's just make it simple. Like there's nine variables. You need to go through and experiment through each one of those nine variables to get that thing right if you really, really believe that that idea is going to work. So anyways, that's kind of hybrided startups and DAOs. But I think at the end of the day, this is about memes propagating through humans. And you can either show them or you can tell them. And so there's just pros and cons to those two paths. Great insights. Appreciate it. And you know, a lot of people that are listening are fascinated by this space and how do I do one and how do you know what did that look like so lots of reflection to do and hope that listeners you know join in on discord chats inside the Krausehaus discord and on city dow discord and you know whatever other dow that you're interested in discord and and just start asking a lot of these questions because whenever you're stuck on something there's probably an answer there's someone out there that's been through it and this is a an age of people helping each other this is an age of community building so definitely take those steps to find your answers and don't count yourself out Ever, really. Yeah. One of the things that this was a really hilarious coincidence, but like I think talking out the idea and pitching different groups of people the idea when it's even before you even bring it out to the internet is really important, right? Tell your mom that idea. Like what questions does she have? What what concerns does he have? Right. Like try to get into their mind. Ironically, Flex and I, so our last startup, we were running out of money on the day basically of his wedding. And his wedding was a, a getaway wedding. And so we were at the beach on his wedding, the day that our, our last startup ran out of money. And we were talking to his friends and they were like, friends were like, guys, like we heard like the, you know, the startup's dead, like, oh my God, you know, how are you guys doing? What are you going to do next? And we we're like, we kind of got this like crazy idea in the last day or so, which is like, we kind of want to buy and operate an MBA team as a DAO. 
And they're like, what's a DAO? Like what money would you use? Like, you know, like all, all these great questions. Right. And we, and I was sitting there and having drinks, talking to all these different people and, and explaining to them. And they're like, that is the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. Like, there's no way that's going to work. And then Flex and I kept getting actually really, really excited because we were like, this group of people that we're pitching to, they think the idea of ownership's interesting, but they can't wrap their head around why or how a DAO could do it. And then we took the same idea and started talking to some DAO people that we knew. And they were like, well, I mean, I like suspend disbelief for a second. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you could, you could do this and you could do that. You can make a smart contract there, right? And you're like, oh, wow. Like, so sometimes pitching your idea to a certain persona can actually be a signal. It's sort of like an anti-signal. Like, wow, I have a certain friend in my life. I bring him all my business ideas. He's almost said every single good one that I've ever brought to him is not the dumbest idea in the world because X, Y, and Z. And like, okay, that's how Normie's going to react. I need to solve all of his objections. Oh, he's worried about this. He's worried about these three things. So I need to have a language and copy to solve those three things. And then I go to the excited people and like, okay, these are the things that you're super hyped about. Let's merge those two. That's your go-to-market of, of how you think about it. So anyways, a little bit of it, you triggered me to think about, you know, sometimes just getting that out there, talking to people about it, to your point of like going to score, getting those advice, like have different buckets of people you want to pitch this onto and then learn from the people who are cynical and learn from the people who are optimistic. And, and that actually gives you a really amazing blueprint. And this is a great segue into some of the accomplishments and priorities on your plate right now. Because we're starting with this conversation at this wedding, and all of a sudden now today, what's today, uh, May 4th, you have initiated this concept of building the world's first NFT basketball court. You're full speed into this big three league concept right now, it seems, and you got an accelerator. And this is some of the today fruits from the efforts and the dedication and the commitment that you and Flex have had over the ages here. And I say ages because like a week is like a year in crypto, right? (laughs) Yes. Feels like a couple of years already. So let's maybe hit those sequentially here. When I check out the Discord and read through some of the the updates that you guys have, it seems, well, it looks to me like you're building a physical basketball court that is going to be fractionalized, I think, into roughly a thousand NFTs and there's community art that's going to be inside the court that people can contribute to and have that be visible to the world. I'm wondering if you want to share a little bit of what's going on there and your excitement around it. And maybe let's just start there. There's an event that we're putting on at NFT NYC. I believe it's on June 22nd, but you should double check that date before anyone books anything or anything like that. But it's during NFT NYC. And yeah, I mean, we're trying to put on a three on three basketball tournament on this court. I think the interesting part about the court is everything you outlined is that we want to turn it into an NFT and sell those is actually sort of a you know digital physical NFT combo, which I think is going to be really exciting. We're going to donate some of those profits to like the NBA Cares and, and nonprofits like that. And so Things just mean awesome event, plus just sort of tying together some of this in real life stuff, plus the digital stuff that Krauss House is uniquely suited for. I'm not working on that directly. And so, you know, I'm trying to bring a, a team on to, you know, talk a little bit more deep of, go check out our Discord and our Twitter account to kind of get more details. But uh, it should be really fun and should be really powerful. But yeah, it's this idea of like, how do we start experimenting with a court? Because now, as you think about a physical court that is also digitized into NFTs, of course, that's extendable into a big three team. It's extendable into courts, you know, in local environments and the NBA markets, right? That experiment is very extensive. So it goes back to the credibility thing. It's like, what can we learn from doing that? And how can we apply it to different either ownership positions that we have or partnerships that we're building? So yeah, that's what I'm super excited about doing kind of a Krauss first in real world event. And I know you said that the other details are deeper in Discord, but I'm just curious at a high level, are we talking about physical land ownership at this point, like the land under the court? Or is it rental land and then just building the court? And and is this like a long-term ownership or is it just for the event specifically? Yeah. So this particular experiment, you know, there will be a physical court that the basketball will be played on and then that will be broken up into physical pieces and, and shipped to people when they buy the digital NFT. So you will get, you know, the digital NFT plus the actual physical asset of it. So there's nothing beyond sort of that kind of scope of it. It's like a temporary court, basically. Yeah, temporary court. Yeah. And we might have it travel a little bit or something like that, but like, that's the general idea is, yeah, you're kind of getting a piece of the a physical court. But I think the point that you were kind of teasing at is like, when we think about going beyond that, and we think about partnering with cities, maybe in markets of teams that we own or working with the big three, like whatever it may be for us, like, I think there's a really powerful gap that crypto broadly and Web3 can start to play with, right? Saying like, okay, I bought this digital piece of this NFT for this court in a local park. And that is a 100% donation pass through to revamp that park in the style of the digital thing that I bought, right? Like, like that's where I think is really powerful. So now, 
I think in the, that particular example, the city would probably still physically own that land. You know, obviously, city down and land ownership, like we're not necessarily thinking about crossing over quite that far. But sort of a long term leasing of that space, you know, yeah, that would be certainly a spot that we would start to experiment into. And I think courts are just a really great, you know, simple, it's a very clean object to mental model. It's a very clean object to own and interact with. And it's a very clean object, I think, for people to wrap their head around in terms of like a fixed dimension. Like when you think about land and buildings, like there's so much variability that we have the continuity of like a court's a court is a court. And so I think that that's a great spot for us to kind of experiment without going too crazy on what that looks and feels like. But that's kind of the scope of it. If we could touch a little bit on this big three league, I saw something really unique in your snapshot voting there. I saw 107,000 Kraushaus token holders voting in favor of the big league and zero voting no. Yeah. We had zero. A, yeah, you had a 100% unified thought and vote and preference to go ahead with this thing. First of all, that's pretty unique. I mean, you know, I've seen in CityDAO, we have some votes that go through with one, two, three, 5% no's, which is great. But 100%, that's pretty rare, man. And I guess, first of all, is that normal inside your community? No. We have a block of voters. And I like, I mean, I get it, but like they've, I think they vote no in every single proposal that spends any money, right? So if anything that has any USDCs tied to it, it's just an automatic no. Now, I will say, I think that their point of view is if it's not actually owning, buying a team, then don't spend money on it. I think that's their principle, which like, hey, like we all have different governance proposals and that's their perspective of it. So I suspect that that block was like, this meets that criteria. <laughs> like this is actually going and buying, you know, a big three team. And so I think that block, now I will say just me as like, when I first got into crypto and I was obsessed with DAO governance, I bought some tokens and NFTs, whatever to participate in, in governance. And I remember I would just vote no sometimes just because it was, you know, literally no one else would vote it no. And it'd be like Gnosis or something like that. And I would just do no, just so like my name would pop up and it was just sort of like a trivia fact, right? Like, and so I'm surprised, like I wasn't trying to troll or anything. I just didn't know what I was doing. I just like, I didn't want to just be another yes among, you know, like I had literally had one Gnosis token and voting on it, right? It was like, ah, like, fuck it. I'll just vote no, right? In hindsight, now that I know more of the team and I, and I know more of coverage. You were that guy, man. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I was that guy. It was like, I was just so naive on, on what I was doing. But I am surprised that no one just put like one token <laughs> against it. So yeah, it was super shocking. Most of our stuff, you know, I'd say most of our stuff passes like 70, 30 or 80, 20. So it's, it's normally a healthy majority, but it's rarely like a 51, 49 kind of deal. But yeah, zero votes against it was pretty wild. Big turnout for it. And I think, again, we talked a little about our credibility phase and why we felt like this was a great first purchase in that kind of credibility phase in this alternative basketball league. A lot of nostalgic NBA players, a really great founding team that's really open-minded to partnering with us. So I'm just really, really excited to experiment with the big three and see where it takes us. But again, we're going to have a portfolio of team positions. So I think the thing that I want to articulate to you when listening is like, Big three is not the NBA and it's nowhere near the price tag. You know, we're putting a half a million dollars of our treasury against it. NBA is two or $3 billion. So it's not even close, but we think that it's a measurable step and an interesting experimental space for us to prove credibility in some dimensions and then build upon that. And so we're just really excited. I totally agree. And I think that if I read it correctly, you're fractionalizing ownership of that league or that team into 25 NFTs. I don't know if I read that right. Yeah, so that was the big three structure. So the big three has 25 fire NFTs. That is like, that's like what they're going to be selling to the general public. We made a deal with them directly to basically say, we'll give you all 25 of that team, like not kind of in the public, it'll be a kind of private transaction. And so you guys will just get all 25. And so each of those 25 NFTs, there's gonna be other teams, right? There's gonna be 25 different people that represent those positions. And so we have this really cool opportunity to say like, okay, we basically have like 25 tickets to Disneyland, right? And it's like, okay, how do we distribute that? What does that look like? Like, like how dynamic can we be? And so we have to work with the big three. We have to work with our community to kind of figure out that kind of playground space. But yeah, there's 25 NFTs that we will own in the treasury that will be able to be our quote unquote ownership into the team and the ball hogs, the name of the team. And those will be owned by the DAO in the treasury. They're not going to be sold off to individual people in the DAO? No, they'll be owned wholly by the, the treasury, yeah. Yeah, then, and then by being a part of Krausehaus, you can have governance over what to do with those, but it doesn't go you know, beyond that, which is probably the right thing. I, th I think I agree with that. The only caveat I would add is like, we're still figuring out the right mechanism. So there's 25 seats, for example, for each one of those fire NFTs, right? Do we do something on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, an annual basis that sort of like 25 Jerry's are sort of 
temporarily assign the rights, like basically lease the NFT, maybe not actually transferring it into a wallet, but maybe that's like the big three asks, like, okay, who's showing up to the game and like what ticket do we print on it? Like those are mechanisms we'll have to figure out, but the actual ownership uh, ownership of it will remain owned by the treasury. How long do you think it's going to take for there to be a Dow-owned sports team in every major league association? I'm going to give you a little bit of a wide variety of answers here. I think a Dow will own a minority slice of an NBA team in the next six to 12 months by the end of the close of next season. I think that will happen and knock on wood, it's cross house. I think that a team will be wholly owned in, and I'm going to take MLS out of this. And so I'm going to include NBA, NFL, MLB, and I'll give you NHL. So those will be the four sports. I think a team will be wholly, like majority owned by a Dow, most likely in the NBA first. And that might happen in the next five to 10-ish years, like, like something on the mid to longer horizon. I think the jump from minority owner to majority owner is a big jump. And so I think we just have to prove a lot, a lot of stuff and make them feel really, really comfortable. That DAO also might be relatively small. I think one of the things that I think we tend to think of as DAOs as being thousands of people, millions of people, I think the future of DAOs, I might say, hey, this is a DAO of 25 people. They use a smart contract to manage their NFTs and their, and their tokens on doing all that. That's really powerful to just simply take ownership and make it into smart contracts. Like that's a big, big step. And I think the NBA, like to be specific, I suspect that the first DAO majority owned in the NBA looks something more like that than it looks like a million people owning a slice of it. Now, that doesn't to say that governance and control isn't baked in there, but like raw the security token <laughs> might be smaller than people realize. But I think that's kind of in the five-ish year time horizon. I think leagues like the MLB, the NFL, NHL, the back channel we've received in all three of those leagues is like, good luck. Like the ownership group is incredibly conservative. They are incredibly old school. They are incredibly tight. They're aggressive on just normal people stepping into it, right? A normal billionaire who wants to buy in the team, they will find all sorts of reasons why and, and it's, a, it's a hell of a process to get into those positions. So here's why I'll, I'll flip this question a little bit. I suspect that the distressed team in the MLB or the NHL would be one of the first potentials that are not in the NBA. Because at this end of the day, if the MLB as an example is really struggling financially, let's say they get knocked down to the third, fourth, fifth league in the, in the United States, and if obviously even smaller internationally, that a distressed asset being put, picked up by a Dow, that could totally happen. So I would pick the NHL and MLB simply in revenue and valuations of teams in a distressed situation is potentially making it. But I would put that on you know 10 plus years. The only caveat I would add, the Premier League is really interesting to me for soccer. I could see a Dow stepping in before the MLB and the NHL, just given on some of the back channel that we understand about soccer and community-owned leagues and things of that nature, the way that they think about it, but the valuations are incredibly high. But the last thing, the last caveat I'll add, is that's assuming the current regulatory environment, the current nation state stability and all that stuff. I mean, I personally, I think a lot of crypto people feel this, right? It's like a shift is going to happen. It has to happen. And so I do think the way that we think about what crypto is in relations with governments, nations, businesses will hopefully so fundamentally shift in the next 10 years that when we think about like, will a DAO own one of these teams? it will start to be a much more like, it's kind of like thinking about, will a company be exist like on a website, right? And it's like, if we were to have this conversation like 1995, it's like, will Nike have a web? It's like, dude, Nike has an app and like you know, NFTs now and experience and a brand. It's like, it's so much deeper than we could have even conceptualized 20 years ago that I don't even know if the words even capture it, right? So I hope that we go through that same transition into crypto into Web3, that tokenization, NFTs, governance, all this stuff, the nation states, corporations, like this will just sort of be a much more nuanced conversation. So then I think governance in those teams happening, that feels like, yeah, governance in teams that teams own in the next five years, like that feels really favorable, but it might not be using some of the same words that, that we understand today. And hopefully that's because crypto's changed the world. Hopefully. I think we all hope that. And this is a great segue into your accelerator, I think. Generally speaking, your accelerator is to help anyone buy a team via a DAO. You know, how do you do that? What does it look like? I mean, even just talking to you, all of a sudden I want to you know, buy an NHL team or start one somehow and, and go through this process because, man, it's exciting. Can you explain how your accelerator works and what's going on with that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're super inspired by Seed Club and having gone through Seed Club and, and Jess and team, what they were able to teach us and show us and connect us with was just really, really incredible. And so one of the realizations we had was that we started unofficially connecting with all these different projects, soccer and baseball and MMA, and just kind of giving them casual advice. And we're like, you know what we should do is we should just formalize this into an accelerator, batch everyone up, 
let them meet each other and work with each other and collaborate. That's the thing, you know, you mentioned CabinDAO earlier. Like a lot of people don't realize that Krausehaus and CabinDAO are like, you know, behind the scenes brothers, for lack of a better word. And it's like, our missions are really not similar at all, but we just got to know them through the Seed Club cohort. We vibe with them. And so we share so many things sort of behind the scenes and just understanding how to DAO, right? And so I think that just simply being in a cohort of, of other projects that are like-minded, going through the same struggles you are is incredibly powerful. So we felt like doing that for the projects that we were talking to would also be super interesting. So we spun up an accelerator and we asked Seed Club for their blessing and said like, hey, like we want to kind of do this in the sports and crypto space. Jess actually said something amazing and Jess is one of the sharpest minds in the space, but he had said, I see a world where every large DAO has its own accelerator, right? Like, like you probably will just accelerate what you know and how you did it, right? Like there's a sort of natural synergy between the idea of a token swap and sharing information. So we spun up the accelerator, we brought in a bunch of great projects and it was cool. There was two buckets. There was one bucket of projects that were very similar across us. Like, hey, we want to buy a soccer team as a DAO. F1, baseball, set up MMA, sort of sports acquisition DAOs. And then there was this other group that was like sports crypto native companies or like DAOs, projects, kind of somewhere in between. So one of them was like Princeton 3 and 3 were like, hey, they're on a mission to win a gold medal as professional basketball players pursuing the FIBA 3 and 3 structure. Like how would a DAO run us and operate us, right? Like awesome. We'd love to help you. Players company doing bank DAO for kind of underserved um, banking communities. Uh, and they're founded by a bunch of former NFL and current NFL players. And so this idea of kind of intersecting finance and sports and, and whatnot. And then the, and the last project, Signing Day, doing NIL, NCAA, player sponsorships and whatnot, right? And so we were like, oh, anything at the intersection of sports and crypto is actually super interesting. So many things to, to learn. So we spun that up. It was awesome. We had a great time. Ran it about six weeks. We just winded it down maybe two or three weeks ago. We're thinking about spinning up cohort number two. So looking for really great projects that are really anywhere in the intersection of sports and crypto, but it was really fun. And I think it's to Jess's point, I think every big DAO should certainly consider building an accelerator and sharing all the insights you developed and then bringing projects that are similar. And then you build a network really in the, in the present and in the future, right? So that network now, they can tap into our existing network. They're part of our network and it just, it continues to grow. And so a lot of this DAO stuff to me Worst case, like the most pessimistic view to me of DAOs going forward is that it ends up being the new alumni group and the new sort of work association groups and all that, which is actually insanely powerful. I don't want that to be what DAOs be, are because I think DAOs have so much more capability than that. But I think sometimes when I look at the cynical case of what we're building with DAOs broadly, just bringing ownership into alumni groups and tying that together with value alignment is actually nuts. Like I think of Stanford and Duke and Harvard like those alumni work networks are worth an insane amount of value to everyone in it. And they charge a fortune to get into that, right? And if DAOs are at worst that, we're still changing the world. But obviously, I want, I want the, the, the unicorn version of DAOs, but it's a little bit of a diatribe. But that was the accelerator and what we were building. Cool. It's super awesome you're doing that. And I'm curious to see if you do cohort too. I'm also curious to see progress from, from those DAOs and, and see where they end up going. It's fascinating. One thing that struck me when I was just checking out and participating was you did this cool survey recently, the Vibes and Values Baseline Survey. And it's sort of an internal assessment for anyone that, that doesn't know or isn't part of the community right now. And it was just to check pulse on a few things. And without going into the micro or revealing anything that might be more for community only, there's a subject around communication and having transparent communication. And that was one that struck me in the results there about how to balance that. And, you know, I even think about CityDAO and clearly, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in contact with a lot of, you could say the quote unquote important people in CityDAO and the guild leaders and watching this whole evolution. And, and I, I clearly see a lot of effort being made to communicate transparently, to include people. Like there's just, there's no way for someone I think to properly represent the opposite. There's just so much effort being made to communicate and include as much of the community as possible. But despite that, and I'm curious in your thoughts on what's happening with Krauss Despite that, there seems to be always this group of people that don't feel like they're getting enough information. And if they weren't asked every single question about every single thing, and they didn't get to vote on absolutely every aspect that, that could be imagined ever, then they're, you know, touting that it's anti-DAO and anti-decentralization. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, geez, like we can't hold a vote on when to hold a vote in order to vote on when not to have a vote. Y you know, like there's got to be limits here. Turtles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if you have some, some thoughts about that for maybe even that you could share to other people that are running DAOs and maybe even city DAO and whatnot. Like, like, do you bump into some of those challenges and how do you deal with them? 
it's really challenging because of the issue that you mentioned, which is like at some point someone has to make a decision, like when to even hold a vote, right? And like that has political power. And we're seeing that even in the US political system, right? Of like this, you know, Senate majority leader cannot bring a bill. And like that's a form of political power that you can use, even though it's a form of not having power, right? So like it's like an anti-power that is power. And so it just gets very recursive really quickly. So I think there's a couple of things. One is I do think a lot of DAOs are masquerading as DAOs and really just, you know, kind of a, a core group of people that make most of the decisions and, and kind of tell the community what they're going to do. So I think that there's a there's improvement for a lot of DAO leaders. And I talk a lot about, about this with like Southwest Airlines is, is a great example. It's just like the CEO, like that company, it's not a DAO, right? Southwest Airlines, but they get really great favorable ratings on like input and re- receptive to criticism and that the CEOs, you know, talking to the mechanics and understanding and empathizing and like, and like that is a complete dictatorship. Like the CEO can fire anyone and everyone at any particular time, but the feeling of that company, I've never worked there or anything, but like it tends to get really, really positive marks. And I think that to me, that is a cultural value that they've instilled from a leadership team perspective of being empathetic and listening and actually listening, not like, Hey, your kids, you know, making an argument why he should have ice cream for, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you're like, Oh, that's a good point. And then you like, you know, bring him broccoli. Like actually listening, like what is the reason that you want ice cream for all three of these, these meals? And like, how can we find a compromise? Because I respect you and I want to find that. So I think a lot of humans, broadly speaking, struggle with that. And so I think a lot of Dow leaders, like it's a pain in the ass and it's very time consuming to want to go do that. And I think that's something I learned through building the startups is that a CEO's job is like, we often have the archetype of the Elon Musk and the Steve Jobs of the world. And their jobs was very you know, dictator of like, I'm building the iPhone. I think it needs to fit in my hand, you know, yada, yada, yada. But some of the best CEOs in the world, the, all they do is listen to people all day. That's all they do. And they converge information. They share long-term visions and they just listen, listen empathetically. And they connect people with the right people and they, and they back and believe in those connections. And so I think a lot of Dow leaders don't understand that they have an Elon Musk, Steve Jobs archetype and they don't have a Southwest Airlines. I don't even know the guy's name, right? And like, that's a, you know, a case in point. It's like, there's ego involved in that. So I think simply leaders working from an empathetic and an active listening perspective is missing in, in all human organization and that manifests itself in doubt. So I think that's one. <laughs> that's a long, that's a long one. The second one is I think there are circles of communication as well. So, you know, I think being really thoughtful and intentional saying like, sometimes you have to make a rapid decision that's really important with people that only have context. And like, that's a form of delegation. So outlining a governance structure that empowers some form of delegation for those types of decisions, and then having those people, like being able to take these, you know, these five people are going to be able to give me a quick reaction to this particular pocket of a thing. And then having communication layers that then also can kind of go through the graph. So what I mean by that is like, you know, you might have a thing that you need to get to five people, but then letting people, the next, you know, 30 people who are maybe full-time or active contributors know that this is, this, the conversations going on. And I need you in that group to be proactive of wanting that information is the second component of it. And then that last part is, is bringing it up to the broader group. So every DAO is going to be organized differently. I think social DAOs are going to be more guilty of this than the DeFi ones, right? Because you're going to have a little bit more like every single choice is going to have a very, very discreet and measurable negative and positive impact on like the total treasury and you know inflows and outflows. But when it's vibes and culture and all this stuff, I think bringing people to the table and trying to set a culture of saying like, I need y'all to be proactive in, in learning information, because at a certain point, it is as humans breaking down. We could make every Loom recap. We could record every meeting. We could post every screenshot of every text message that ever goes ever out. Will people read it? No, because it's a curation and condensing problem, not an actual information problem. And so that point of like creating a culture of being proactive of like, if you want to be involved in that, then like you need to be proactive in some mechanism. I think that's where that group comes from. It's like they're in a reactive or they're too busy or whatever it is. And that's a spot I don't know how to solve yet in DAOs or like, hey, I want to casually be part of this community without being proactive. And that's a really, really, we have a Jerry's Digest, we have the podcast. Those are two strategies, tactics to improve that group that wants to be reactive. But I suspect that reactive group is the group of the dissatisfaction. And again, again, going back to Southwest Airlines, the way that that CEO probably do it is go to them yeah, on, on regular cadence conversations, go to the, the mechanic shop, walk the floor, talk to them and see them face to face, right? So I, where, what are, how do DAOs manifest themselves in that way? I don't know yet, but I suspect that's the pattern. So that was a long ass <laughs> response to that, but that's how I kind of see this, this challenge. Well, it's great. And it's important subjects. And 
I know I got to let you go here. I could keep you chatting forever. So I'll just wrap up on a couple notes. You know, one thing we're experimenting with in City Hour very recently is Chance has been doing a great job at building these roundup notes of what happened in the last two weeks, every two weeks inside the DAO into like a three to five minute summary. And we're opening up for anyone in the community to record and, you know, volunteer to record basically that summary on your own at your own will. And then we're going to take that recording, put it some, you know, nice branding colors on it and video effects and distribute it amongst the DAO in a, in a form of like decentralized content distribution and also do it in multiple languages to try and bridge the gap of this communication. So anyone that's listening out there and, you know, feels like they're not getting communicated to enough, keep in mind that there's a lot of efforts that a lot of DAOs are making to try and do that. And it's definitely, you know, we'd love to hear your input on that as well moving forward. Anyone that wants to check out Krauss check out the show notes to this episode. There's going to be a link to the Krauss Twitter, the Discord, of course, and a couple other articles about what Krauss is. And of course, we really look forward to keeping the communication dialogue open and the relationship open with you guys. Commodore, is there anything on your mind at the moment that you would want to just share and get out? So I want to make sure that you have the full satisfaction here of the floor. Is there anything on your mind you want to share that we haven't touched on so far? No, I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to be an NFT NYC and you're into basketball, you absolutely should check out our event. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a great time. Again, it's our first event, so we're kind of going all out on it. And so we're super excited. And then if Big 3 is interesting you, you know, and you have ideas on how to play around with this Big 3 space and, you know, want to explore fandom of of the ball hogs and exploring what all that looks like, I think it's going to be a really, really fun, like an onboarding experience, right? Like if you haven't been in the crowd sauce, what an interesting way. I think the season starts up in like six weeks. So it's like we have this really nice window here to welcome new folks and explore like what is owning and operating a team like the Bogs look and feel like. And so those two things jump to mind. Awesome. Well, everyone that's listening, thanks for checking us out. The next episode comes up next week, of course. And Commodore, thanks for your time. I really appreciate your input and your insight. I certainly had some takeaways. I think everyone else did as well. On that note here, we will see you on Discord. We will see you on Twitter. And we'll just see you next time we do an episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me.